Health in Schools podcast, designed and delivered by Anna Bateman. In this podcast, Estelle sets out how to create a vision and narrative for your school, which includes attainment, well-being and a broad curriculum. She provides many thought-provoking insights and ideas into how to lead change through this vision. First, a quick word from our sponsors. At Jigsaw PSHE, we believe that personal development and strategies to build mental well-being need to be taught and not left to chance. Jigsaw, the mindful approach to PSHE, leads the way in providing children and young people with its acclaimed, well-structured and developmental lesson-a-week learning experience in PSHE from ages 3 to 16. Detailed lesson plans and all the teaching resources needed, along with free updates and ongoing support, make Jigsaw an invaluable, relevant and fresh resource, taking the worry out of PSHE planning. Written by teachers for teachers. Unmindfulness philosophy and practice underpins the whole programme. Statutory government requirements for relationships, health and sex education are amply covered. For more information, go to www.jigsawpshe.com or call at Jigsaw HQ. Now to the podcast. So welcome today to um, Halcyon Education's podcast schedule. Um, We're calling this one Treading the Line, um, Improving Wellbeing and Mental Health, as well as Good Standard of Education. In this podcast, Baroness Estelle Morris shares her experience and wisdom of overcoming the challenges of leading a school in the current financial and political context and ensuring wellbeing is at the heart of school's vision as well as a good standard of education. Estelle started her career in education as a teacher in an inner-city, multiracial, comprehensive school where she taught for 18 years. In 1992, she entered Parliament, becoming the Secretary of State for Education and Skills in 2001. She followed this with two years as a Minister at the Department of Culture, Media and Sport and left Parliament in 2005. Since then, she's combined a career that includes senior posts, both in education and the arts, as well as being a member of the House of Lords. She now works at the Institute of Effective Education, which aims to transform the relationship between education research and practice so that policy making and teaching can become more evidence-based. She's also a trustee of the National Poetry Archive. Estelle also chairs and advises Birmingham Education Partnership, an organisation responsible for school improvement in Birmingham and delivering on an ambitious city-wide project improving the mental health and well-being of schools. Thank you so much for joining us My today, pleasure. Estelle. Um, I'm, you and I have met, I know, a few times because um, we both work um, with sort of Birmingham Education Partnership on, um, on several you know, projects and obviously you're chairing the board. So I'm really thrilled that you're here to share your, uh, you know, your wisdom and your insights today. So we're sort of um, thinking about uh, the way that the government policy is going at the moment. We know from a mental health and emotional well-being perspective that the DfE, um, with the Mental Health Green Paper and um, certain sort of non-statutory guidance, is coming out. We also know we've got Ofsted's focus more on that broad and balanced curriculum. And I know we'll 
we'll talk about that because I know you share um, you know the, the feeling that having those sort of cultural and, and other experiences are really, really important for well-being but also we know Ofsted are looking at staff well-being and, and, and sort of that character development so whilst we know that there's lots of policy sort of in, in a particular direction we're still at a stage aren't we where schools are cut to the bone really in terms of financial pressure expectations and also from my experience of working in schools is the the number of complex issues social issues that um, schools are having to deal with because they're a statutory service um, and and all the other services have gone they're having to deal with those you know in amongst that and it's it's called you know creating quite a pressured environment so um, I just wondered if you had any thoughts really on how schools can kind of navigate this current context and keeping well-being really at the heart of things. Mm. It's not easy, but let's look at the positive first. I think uh, that government and and the wider society does not accept that children can have mental health problems. And when I think back to my own years teaching, which is now a good time ago, Mm. I I remember with concern, uh, I can picture the children who, um, probably looking back, had mental health problems, but we were in a very good, caring, supportive school but there was no mechanism to acknowledge that or really way of referring them to the health services. And I think in those days, we assumed that either the children were badly behaved or the family wasn't operating in an effective way. So we've come a long way, and it's worth saying that, um, because I think one thing I've learnt over the years, that there's a time, there's enough time and opportunity for things to happen, and if you miss it, it doesn't come round again for the next generation. So let's look at it positively. The government's admitting that there's a mental health issues, wider society is, mm. celebrities are. If you don't watch it, it's rather the fashionable thing to say. Yes. It's the idea of the moment. So that's good. People now understand that, and that gives education an opportunity to really help shape that debate mm. about what is, in, what is involved and what is needed, because they're very much part of it. However, you also know, we all know this, don't we, whether we're teachers or politicians or whatever it's one thing saying you want to do something it's another thing actually making it happen so that 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 move from having a policy to implementing it is fraught with difficulties i think our education system isn't short of good ideas it's very short of how to put the good ideas into practice in all schools so it's great it's on the agenda it's great it's top of priority list But where I'm not convinced at the moment, only because it's too early, you know, again, I'm not being overly critical, but it's crucial now that we really work out how the notion of well-being for staff and for students can be an integrated part of what schools do. And I think one of the issues that's really problematic is the lack of money. Mm. Money by itself doesn't solve anything, Mm. but to try to change a culture, which I think is what we're looking for in schools... Mm does need some money to, mm. to get it to go. And it's, you know, the idea that you spend the same money in different ways might be partly true. Mm. But I've always thought, I think from experience, that introducing new ideas and new policies in a time of diminishing budgets makes it so much more difficult than if you've got some resource to really model the good practice and incentivize people yeah. to start looking at this. So, yeah. you know, an opportunity, but I absolutely accept it's not the easiest time in education no. to really implement these big ideas. No, no, not at all. It is really challenging. 
What do you think um, a sort of a senior leader could do in a school when you're thinking about the priorities, therefore? So knowing we've got diminishing resources, almost knowing we're at the, we're at the right time to kind of grasp onto, you know, well-being and mental health is really important as well. Um, how does, a, how does a, a leader, a mental health lead or, a, you know, a, a senior leader in school kind of start to um, craft that out in their, you know, in their vision of how we maintain that balance mm-hmm. as well as the well-being of our staff? Mm. Have you got any thoughts? I think they have to really ask themselves quietly how much they do value well-being mm-hmm. of staff and pupils because I don't think anybody would say I'm not interested in the well-being of my staff and my pupils. Mm-hmm. Nobody says that because nobody thinks that. Mm. But again, it's a distance from saying I'm interested in the well-being of my staff and pupils and making it clear in the school and making things happen. Mm-hmm. That's quite a distance. So I think my first message, my first suggestion to school leaders is thinking about is how much do you value it? So let me give, give you examples. Do you value it more than your exam results? Do you value it more than your Ofsted? Mm-hmm. Do you value it more than the number of students you can attract into your school? Yeah. And the truth is you do, but you can't afford to not pay attention to those other things as well. So I think what they've got to do is they've got all those other pressures that they can't ignore. They can't go in and say, I don't care the results of any child as long as they feel happy. We'll be back in the 70s and no one quite wants, no one quite wants to be there. But I think that they can almost, two things I think, create a narrative in the school. So the story about their school, the story they tell is that, there are, that they try to get their children the exam results, is that they're proud about their Ofsted grades. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm. But it's equally that we don't do that at the expense of well-being. Mm. And you don't have to do it at the expense of well-being. So my first question would be, when you tell the story of your school, how much do you tell the story of well-being mm. of your staff and children, and I would also say in a positive way, mm. I'm not one, I don't like, I, I find that I'm a bit, it saps my energy if I walk around a school and what I get from school leaders on that narrative is the kids are under too much pressure, they're worried about their sats, and I've got staff who are staying in school too late and they're crying when they get home and they're missing school. And that doesn't do anything for me. I'm, I'm not saying it's not real for them. But if that becomes the story of their school as far as well-being is concerned, that will be what their school's like. I think it's really, really tough, but they have to try and create a narrative that says, yes, it's tough, but this is what we're doing. And the second suggestion is give staff and students permission to talk about it. Mm. Um, You know, you don't... It's not an excuse, but staff have got to be able to say, look, I'm doing all this. What would really help me is because I'm feeling a bit under stress. Mm. So somehow it's creating a language Mm. in the school where it's talking about the energy loss that poor mental health and well-being can bring about, Mm. but not in a way where it creates even more energy to flow from the building. It's got to be talked about in a way that somehow brings energy and capacity Mm. into the building. And that change isn't brought about overnight, but it's it's probably deep in your soul Mm. reflects what you really feel education is about. And um, you have to be confident you know the answer to that question Mm. before I think you can embark on 
these things. Mm. I love that idea of the energy. Um, I think it's really important. You know, when you go around, you feel that energy. Feel that energy. Young people feel the energy. Um, and, uh, you know, that narrative and the, the story that we tell within school about that is really, really important mm. as mm. that balance. I love that. Mm. How much do you think the, the curriculum and the way that now um, Offset are, you know, obviously going to be inspecting that broad and balanced? Because we, we know that schools have felt so under pressure that they've got into themselves into a place sometimes, some schools, where, yeah, it, the, the, the sort of the... Um, those things that perhaps where children aren't attaining well when in the typical maths and English literacy numeracy um, haven't been able to succeed at those kind of creative subjects they've gone in schools how much do you think the, the curriculum and that aspect uh, that now moving forward will will impact on that well-being story I'm sure it does well it does in us as adults doesn't it yeah. if we don't have any art culture sport leisure exercise chatting to people, we feel under pressure and mm. why we would think it was different for children. We all need that space. And I think children need to learn that balance of interest. They need to learn that they get different things from different experiences. And if all you're doing is sitting at the table at your desk doing maths, English, you know, history, geography and science, mm. I don't know how you learn the different kinds of learning that, that there are. Having said that, I completely understand the pressures on schools that make them only that make them either narrow the curriculum mm. or only talk about the parts of the curriculum that are measured. Mm. And that's because the consequences of not getting those right are, are, are difficult for them. But if you, what all the evidence says is that um, I think we, everyone knows this really. Doing that broader curriculum helps to improve your results in the things that we test as well. But I think there's a big divide at the moment in schools between confident schools and less confident schools. And if you're a confident school where your results are quite good, your Ofsted grading is quite good, you are attracting the pupils, I think it gives you that space as a school leader, a teacher, to say, we're going to do it. Yeah. We're going to have the day off and go out on a trip. Yeah. I am going to prioritise art this week. Yeah. We are going to put a lot of time into either sport in the school or competitive sport. If you're a non-confident school and is constantly thinking, you know, I'm going to get into real trouble unless I get these results up, I understand, I think it's the most natural thing that what you say to yourself is, I'll do that in the future, mm. but for now I've got to concentrate on the basics. Mm. But every school's on a journey yeah. and few schools are non-confident mm for all the time and few schools are confident for all the time mm. so maybe there, there, there are times when that's the way it is mm-hmm. um, it's just, just the way it is it gets the yeah. school in a steady state and it gives them sound foundations on which to build but please don't be there long so I think it is about confidence no one in the system not Ofsted, not the government minister not the prime minister I've never met anybody who, who ever thinks they have given the impression that art, culture, sport, well-being, citizenship don't matter. Mm. And I had this experience. All they said is, it matters, but we don't think we should measure it. And what teachers hear is, we're not measuring it, so it doesn't matter. And and I I think it's very difficult for politicians, because if they say, okay, okay, we do value it, we'll start measuring it, Mm -hmm. it becomes something it isn't. Mm. Do you want a performance table now on art or sport? No, 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 no. It's about... 
we've got to find a way around it. Yeah. So I actually think it's got to be up to the heads. Mm -hmm. It's got to be the school who says, we think it's important. Yeah. We value it. And in our school, it's going to happen. But I'm absolutely convinced on two levels. One, that it helps bring about better academic results. Mm. But secondly, it is good in its own right mm. that I think it's essential. The only thing I'd say, because it's a bit of a... It's a bit of a... Um, I get, I hear all this from, from, from schools, that um, they've no time for anything but the things we measure. Yet when I go to schools, there is art on the wall. Mm -hmm. The children are running around in the playground. Mm -hmm. They can tell me about a sports team. Mm -hmm. They do do citizenship things. And so we, we need... I say this very carefully, because I, I don't... It's not meant as a criticism. But to be honest, I, I think I'd say to school leaders, come on, you're not saying, are you? we don't want to admit we're doing it unless we get some recognition for it. Because that's not right. No. You know, you, as a school leader, you don't need recognition for that. Just do it. Mm. So why, how, why don't they say we feel under pressure but we've got brilliant art display? Mm -hmm. So look around your school. Look at what you are doing and then talk about it. Talk it up. Talk it up. Mm -hmm. Say, part of our school is this. I think there's very, very few schools who don't do any of that broader curriculum. But I certainly well understand that there's some schools who feel a need to put more time into that broader curriculum. Mm -hmm. And um, that's not where schools want to be. Mm -hmm. And we're not good at finding a way to support them, but it, it is really important that they do that. And now a short break to hear from our sponsors. CPOMS is an online system for schools to manage pastoral concerns and events and is now used by over 10,000 schools. The main reason it works so well is that the categories of information a school logs on CPOMS are chosen by the school, so that the concerns you face that are unique to your community or individuals can be logged accordingly. It saves a huge amount of time compared to doing things on paper. Chronologies for pupils or school-wide reports can be generated quickly. The Service Point support team provide an incredible standard of service and one of the main reasons that CPOMs are spread by word of mouth to so many schools. For more information, go to www.cpoms.co.uk, where you can also book a demo for your school. Now back to the podcast. It's really interesting, isn't it, when schools, like you say, they're in, and, and often that, that confidence that you've talked about, it's often related to their Ofsted category, if we're honest, and the results. Yes. Um, my experience is when schools are in, in, in areas of deprivation, for example, they're, they're fairly confident with their pastoral support yes. and they're really, they're, their processes are amazing and the confidence sometimes comes in that feeling of, you know, yes. never almost feeling like they're on top. And so you're right, it's where the schools are in the journey. We can't say it's a one-size-fits-all and all schools have got to have this balance that, you know, when you are in a category, um, you have got to be focusing on those basics. You've got to fill the foundations. But not at the cost of yes. well-being. I mean, we all know um, people who've tried to innovate and do what sounds to be wonderful things, and it's not gone well because they've not, they've not had firm foundations on which to build and they've not done it gradually. So I think I've learned to accept that from heads, that I sort of a very good head in Sheffield once, and... She'd been ahead in an outstanding school and she'd had a really broad and balanced curriculum. Mm. And the school she was in, which was a really challenging school, it had a lot of the uh, Romanian traveller families, mm. the turnover was phenomenal mm. in one year. It was at that time when Sheffield had a lot of Romanian traveller families. And, um, 
I said, you don't do his broad balance curriculum here, but why, why not? Mm. She, you know, surely with these children's budget. She says, because my staff aren't at that level yet. Mm. She says, I need to get them confidence in the basics of the school, the way we run it, mm. and our values, and that we can teach the children to read and write. She says, then I'll expand it. Yeah. And I thought that was wise. Mm. And um, I had, don't have an answer to the question, well, what about the children who are at that school while well, you're not doing a broad and balanced curriculum? I don't have an answer to that. But those things happen. Mm. But uh, she put very, very easily, I thought, yes, I can see that. Mm. She knows where she's going, yes. but she's wise about judging the point mm. at which she can make changes to the curriculum. Mm. As long as you don't do it because you think someone's told you yeah. to keep the curriculum narrow or because you're so frightened of the results that you don't do anything else. Yeah, and I think that there has been that fear, hasn't there? There is that. I, I might, if I was in that position, I might do it myself. Mm. I don't know. That's absolutely understandable. And I think what to say to those heads is, if it's just you with those pressures, I think you're going to take the cautious deci- make the cautious decision. Mm-hmm. So talk to your staff, talk to other heads, mm-hmm. think who's been at this point on this school improvement path before, what did they do? Don't make the jump to your, broad, you know, your broader curriculum um, until you've got your own capacity and your own support around you. Don't do it by yourself. Do it knowing you've got support. That's really wise. There were some other things. I know when um, you sort of talked at, at various conferences and things about um, the pressure that kids are under, and particularly, I think you mentioned SATs, um, and that actually, you know, what schools could, leaders can do to improve that pressure. Is that part of that storytelling they and do. that narrative? I don't know why a kid stage one child knows they're taking a test. Mm. I really do not know who's told them. Mm. Who has told a seven-year-old that they're about to be assessed? And yet I hear stories of seven-year-olds, um, you know, being nervous about the test. Well, either the story's not true and it's been made up to make a point mm. or a parent or a teacher has put that pressure on them and it's unforgivable. Mm. So, you, you know, if children feel stressed in tests, it's because adults mm. have told them mm. it's high risk and there's consequences if they don't do it. I've done that. I did that as a teacher. Mm. I did that as a teacher and... You know, looking back, um, it's the wrong thing to do. And I know why I, know why I did it. You're, you're almost saying, look, this is a tough time for all of us. You better do your best because yeah. we're all gonna, we're all in this, you yeah, know, mate. Do your bit, please. Do yeah. your bit, please. Yeah. Um, I understand that completely. But I think if in the school the, the, there is an atmosphere of... Uh, I mean, I've heard from really good stories that, you know, schools who just did sort of practice things and the children never knew when it was the test but they got them used to the environment in which that would happen Mm. because they didn't periodically but they weren't told that this is it this is the test this is the key stage to test or something like that so I just say I had once said that to in a conference I was at and I wouldn't have said it but I always say he said it to a group of heads so I'm quoting him and he said that he said you should never pass your pressures down to your staff and the staff shouldn't pass their pressures down to the children. Mm. And I think that's probably true, but I think it's really, really, really difficult to do. It is. But if it's in the back of your mind Mm. and you're not doing it too much, maybe that's a Mm. a good compromise. Mm. That's a really good point. I also love the way that you sort of like to reframe um, the the sort of school improvement narrative um, and sort of utilising the whole school community what, what are your, what, what, what's the story that schools can kind of, and that narrative that they can have around school improvement and then utilising the whole school community? Yeah, I mean, narrative is really important. The thing I learnt in politics, actually, from 
Tony Blair and uh, I served with him uh, in, in his uh, government, he, he always said, and he said, I've never forgotten it, he said, if you want to change, you want to bring about change, first of all, you've got to persuade people that change is needed. Mm. He says, if you say, we've got to change without having spent time talking to them so that they agree with you that change is needed, he says, that's the first phase. Then you've got to say, and these are our options, mm. and discuss them with them. Then you've got to say, our preferred option is. And I think the same is true of schools. Mm. You've got to tell your story. This is where we are at the moment. This is what, this is what we do. And what we tend to do at the moment, where, if I say to Heather, where are you at the moment? They say Ofsted good and 85% of children get in quite level mm -hmm. four. That's not a story. And in my mind, narrative means words as well as figures. Right. So what's the story you tell? And what's that journey? Where did you start? Mm. What, 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 what were your objectives? Where are you now? What's worked? What's not worked? And that story is not just about you. It is about the school as a community. And so it's the story of the quality of the building, the quality mm. of reception, the quality of the food. If you think, just step back a bit mm. and think, what is the story of my school? Mm. If you only then think about what happens in the classroom... That's only one chapter. Mm -hmm. You need to tell the bigger story. So when you step back and think, what is the story of my school? What happens on the playing field? What happens in break times? What happens with parents? And if you can just think, you frame that story about your school and its community. Because mm -hmm. if you don't tell that story, we've nothing else in the system that does. Mm -hmm. We're really, really good about telling the story of school's academic exam results. Yes. We're really good at that. Yeah. But government, the powers that be, can't tell that wider story. Mm. So don't wait for them to tell it. Mm. It's important it's told, but it's got to come from you. Mm. And it's not a story you make up yourself. And don't forget, stories don't stop. that They go on. And that as you tell your story, it's got to lead into. So what we're looking to the future is. Mm. It's no good saying, our story is this and it's got us to here. Yeah. Because someone's holding their breath and saying... So, yeah. what does that give you the chance to do? Mm. And I think if you can do that, one of the things I always say, a phrase often, an analogy, I suppose, I often use in meetings or I'm talking to people is persuade them to get on your bus. But unless they know where the bus has come from, where the bus is going, mm. why would they get on your bus? So I often think about that. You're persuading them to get on your bus, your train, yes. to take the next steps yeah. in the journey. And that's quite challenging um, when there's been so much change. And it's quite challenging when staff feel anxious yes. to come out of that space and be able to confidently go, OK, Yes. Um, have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's difficult because I'm not in that job. Mm. I think that's the nature of good leadership. Mm. I think they've, I'm not ahead. Mm. So, um, so far out of school, no, um, I, I'm not sure I would, be, I would be able to go and do it. But I think really good heads can answer, can answer that question. Mm. And it, it can be anything from... Um, Just a little few examples. I, I, I know what, what one of the simplest things is thanking people. Mm. And anyone in Birmingham can remember Tim Brighouse oh, yes. and his notes. Mm -hmm. And what was the strange thing? We all knew lots of people got notes, but we all still valued the note we got. Yes. So it doesn't have to be unique. How many of your thank yous and notes mm. are about things beyond the academic subjects? Yeah. How many children you get to stand up in assembly 
are about things mm. beyond that. So I think it's partly about what you're what you're seen to value. Mm. But I had a really interesting example. Um, I've got two. I'll just tell one for brevity, uh, for, for time. But when I was a minister, I went to um, see a school in the black country. Mm. I was outside Birmingham, maybe Sandwell, I can't quite remember. And you see, when you go as a minister, they always want to show you the broader curriculum. This is what's strange. Interesting. They, you see more children perform, you look at more drawings on walls, you, you look at what's going in the programme. That's what they choose to tell you, show you, but they don't realise that's what they've done because that's, they do value that. And this head teacher says, you like to come out into the playground to see what's happening. So like, yes, let's do that. It's a primary school. And they were skipping, mm. rope skipping. Mm-hmm. I'm old enough to have done rope skipping when I was younger. So two ends of the rope. She's there in the National Skipping Championships tomorrow. As, this was a Friday. I said, that's fantastic. I, I didn't even know there was the National one, Skipping yeah. Championships. So I said, what on earth made you do that? She said, well, Miss So-and-so, who's the head, who's the teacher, she's got a passion about that. She's always skipped and she's introduced it into the school. And it stayed with me forever. Mm. So just think about that. Something happened in that school. The, the teacher came in with a passion. Mm. She was given permission yeah. to let people know about it. The head then gave her permission to do it. Mm. And the head chose to show it to a government minister. Yeah. What a way of giving your staff the message that things other than teaching the national curriculum... Works. And what I, the question I say put back to head teachers now is, what's your passion? Mm-hmm. Will I see it in your school when I go in? And by the I way, do you know what your teachers' passions are? And do you see it in their classroom when you go in? It could be baking, it could be painting, it could be jewellery, it could be, as mine was, politics. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know when I was a teacher that in tutor time, I gossiped about politics to them, not wow. in any structured way, because we didn't in those days. No. But I don't think there was a kid in my tutor group who didn't know I was interested in politics mm. because in those days, before the national curriculum, I wasn't under pressure to do anything. I said, just to say to school leaders, what's your passion? Can I see it in your school? Mm. And what's your teacher's passion in every classroom? And can you see it in their classrooms? And have you mm. let them, have you given them, have you said to them, that's great, bring it to the school? So I think where that leads us is, I think it's good that there's things that are the same about all our schools. Mm. Because what should be the same is what as a nation, as a society, as a community, we felt was important in terms of knowledge and skills to pass on to the next generation. We don't, and therefore we compare the things that we've put in the schools that are the same. We don't talk enough about what's different. Mm. And in every school we should be able to say, and that's different. Mm. So what's the different in your school? Mm. Don't tell me a different way of doing what's the same. Does that make sense? No, absolutely it right. does. So show me what's different, yeah. what wouldn't be there if you and your teachers didn't happen to be in that school at that time. So I love the skipping story. Mm. And I can think of one or two examples where that's been the case. And there's been school leaders who have managed to find the space mm. to let their staff be other than teachers of the national curriculum. I love that. And I think when, you know, it's, it's got me thinking about that, the pressured environment. So you, children, young people, most anxiety that we've ever known, staff anxious, leaving. We've got, you know, we've got staff leaving early career, mid-career now, more than we ever did before. Yes. And it, and, and it got me thinking, is it about, some of it, about that feeling like you're, you're an automaton, you're, you're, you're a robot going through a process 
And if we are, then that's that is boring. It is yeah, depressing. It is it, pressurising. It's not great. And actually, that part of our passion that that brings that energy. You know, we, when we're passionate about something, it brings energy, doesn't it? It does. It, it frees you. It's, a, it's like saying, "Oh, I can't do this work, and I'm going for a walk." Yeah. It's the equivalent of, oh, "I'll go for, or I'll make a cup of tea, or I'll go in the gardens for ten minutes." And you know, if, if schools are so tightly structured, where's the yes. let, let's all go for a walk? I mean, yeah. when I was a kid pre-national curriculum you know the teacher on a fine day would say let's go and sit on the field yeah. and to be honest we didn't do a great deal of work no. when we sat on the field even though we were meant to be. but it didn't matter because there wasn't the pressure no. and I still think confidence schools can find that time mm. you can't really say that taking the kids out to the equivalent of a walk or a nature trek whatever I'm just taking 30 kids out you can't do that but planning it yeah there's no school whose results will be worse because they spent a day or a half term doing that. Mm. Or learning through your passion. Finding learn, that passion learn through and your then passion. learning through, through your passion. And I think schools, because the timetable's so squeezed, and we have, we, we have been in a place where it's been, you know, the bell goes, right, we're doing this now, right, we're doing that now. And, and you know, there's no space for thinking and that passion. That yeah. We can create that space within the slots, yes, within we can, the timetable. We can do it. Just a bit more relaxed about it. Yeah. And part of it's the conversation. So I think it goes back to the question you probably asked me at the start, this rather lengthy question we've just been discussing. What can heads do? I think there's a lot of little ways that they can show to their staff, you know, that I don't, just don't want you to do the pressurised things. And have a big impact. Have, a, have yeah, that yeah, passion yeah, a big picture. and energy. So go back to your question, how do you tell the story of your school and the community? Mm. You include in it. Miss so-and-so's passion, Mr. So-and-so's passion, and this is how we do this. I love that. I absolutely um, really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and your insights. I think it's brilliant. Um, and it's just, you know, I really hope the schools can kind of gain that, that energy again and that passion for um, something other than just, you know, trying to um, get the results. Mm. So thank you so much for your time today. No, I really they, appreciate it. They're doing an incredibly important job, and I'm really conscious that while other services are underfunded, mm. that extra pressure is placed on them. We need to get back to a position where there's enough resource to bring in those extra skills. Mm. That's the real answer, that a school needs more than teachers yes. to make it a learning community where well-being is valued. Mm. But maybe we'll get there. Yeah, let's hope so. Thank let's you. I hope you have found this episode helpful, particularly in relation to leadership, um, your broad and balanced curriculum offer and where you are with your school improvement journey. And finally, the balance of well-being and the importance of not passing the pressure and stress down from leadership. I'll be covering this in a future podcast with a consultant clinical psychologist where we talk about the importance of this as a whole school approach to reducing anxiety. hope that you enjoyed this podcast. For more information and support on this topic, go to the resources section at the end of the website. That's www.halcyon.education forward slash podcasts. Mm-hmm.